This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Moving from story to setting. Utopian architects. The Argus. And David Lynch's Revenge of the Jedi. You've perfected the dosi dough. You've mastered the mashed potato. You know your dance crew is the hottest around, but now it's time to prove it. Breakdancing Meeples is a real-time dexterity game of, you guessed it, Breakdancing Meeples. Designed by Ben Moy and published by our friends at Atlas Games. To play, roll your Meeple dance crew as fast as you can, over and over. Lock in useful rolls and re-roll the rest to complete dance routines and score points. After four one-minute dance rounds, the crew with the most crowd appeal wins the trophy. Breakdancing Meeple comes in a metal tin that's nearly as indestructible as your high school boombox. It plays two to four people, ages six and up, in five minutes. Find Breakdancing Meeple's at your friendly local game store or at atlas-games.com backslash breakdancing. Because when beats bump, Meeple's gotta dance. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, well, look at that, Robin. There's a cat up a tree. There's uh, a rising triangle. Maybe there's a proscenium arch under all this nonsense. Peter Frampton, both smiling and frowning. We've entered a dramatic corner of the gaming hut because beloved Patreon backer Michael Broadhead asks us, I've come up with a game setting I like, but it needs a story for players to engage with. What processes or tools can I lean on to come up with a suitable story? What factors should I consider? Is there a helpful taxonomy of story types? Robin, there are many taxonomies of story types. Are any of them helpful? They are not. Ah, so take that. we'll dispense uh, with this. I- I'm surprised it's taken me 409 episodes to uh, take aim at this nonsense. And perhaps uh, in a, a previous parenthetical, I've taken aim at it before. But the uh, you sometimes hear that there are X number of stories And all you need to do is figure out which type of story you're telling and go from there. But that is uh, nonsense. It is hoo-ha. So, for example, uh, uh, the uh, union writer Christopher Booker will tell you that there are seven basic plots. Among his plots are tragedy. Tragedy is not a plot. It is a genre. (laughs) Or you could upgrade to 20 plots. Uh, That's the theory of uh, Ronald Tobias. But among his plots is ascension. Ascension isn't a plot. It's an arc. Or you could go all the way up to 36 blocks, as Georg Pulte would have it. Uh, but guess what? Falling prey to the cruelty of misfortune, not a plot. Perhaps a theme, not a plot. Not a, plot. a plot is something like there is a dangerous town where a man will shoot a dog. Another man is shot for working his land. A gunman comes to town. His motives appear ambiguous. Does he wish to tame the town? Or does he wish to ask a question of a woman who will not see him? The folk of the town have a meeting. They elect the gunfighter to tame the town. He goes back to the woman. But there is another complication and another complication and so on, because that is a story. That is a plot. That is a whole bunch of things happening. And a plot 
is specific. The reason a plot is hard is that uh, sometimes you will have to go, does this make sense? Will people care about this plot? Uh, is the character uh, driving the plot or am I pulling the character through the plot? So uh, the thing about story in role playing is that in other fields, and ideally in this one, that plot arises from character. It doesn't uh, arise from place, from setting, but rather from the desires of the uh, protagonists. And so the trick with role playing is that uh, you are designing a playground for protagonists you maybe haven't met yet. And so uh, what we do to solve that problem in role playing is we come up with a, a core activity, as uh, many of you are mouthing along with at home, uh, which is the thing that the uh, general uh, class of protagonists, the adventurers, the investigators, whatever they are in your game, uh, tend to pursue. And so uh, the question uh, then is, how do I uh, activate my setting so that it has a default core activity that I can assume more or less that the players are willing to engage with, and so that there's a broad thing that they often want to do, and what the players bring to the table when they create their characters is the reason why their characters are pursuing that thing. The motivation, if you will. Motivation, if you will. Now, sometimes it's just sort of uh, implicit they're pursuing treasure because that's why they call it treasure, and that's all you need or bother with. So uh, one of the tricks is it may be a step too late to design your world and then go, what are the conflicts in this world? But chances are, Ken, you didn't design a world without any conflicts. You just haven't quite thought of them as the motor for... There's no chance that I did it, that's for sure. Well, yes. Uh, <laughs> but wh whoever designed the setting... Uh, well, well, Earth is full of conflicts. You didn't design it, but you bring out things about it when you write about it. Exactly. So how do you go from a setting to a conflict, which is the first step toward story? Well, as you say, the setting may have a conflict inherent in it. It may be a savage uh, world of all against all, as in your Warhammers, variously understood. It can be a uh, King Arthur is, is holding back the tides of barbarism and Saxonry. And so there is an implicit conflict between barbarism and Christendom. It can be a story in which the West is expanding and there is a conflict between frontier uh, values and civilized values. It can be a conflict in which there's a bunch of Nazis trying to take over the world and a bunch of people who, for various reasons, would rather that not happen. And it is a more familiar World War II-y sort of conflict. Uh, conflicts, you know, range all over the map, literally. So once you have established your setting in the sense of understood enough about your setting to know who the main players are, what they want, or what the main themes are, and how they clash, conflict almost emerges organically out of that because, you know, in a world with both Hitler and Stalin, guess what? There will be peace for about 18 months and then there will be apocalyptic conflict of one sort or another. So we're up to badness if you have, you know, some sort of uh, of expansionist villain or you have a uh, an expansionist thing that is merely just expanding, like, uh, say, the railroads do or or whatever else. Uh, wherever they are going, there are people who would rather they not go there. That's a conflict. The same thing is true of your player characters. Wherever they're going, there are probably people who would rather they not go there. And uh, whether those be dragons or hobgoblins or rival bands of um, uh, red hat bards, that's that that sort of comes down to your world. And I think the the question that you are ideally posing is not how does your world create conflict, but as you 
your players create characters, how can they naturally hook into the conflict? And if the simple conflict is, as you say, uh, there's not enough treasure and I want more of it, then it's relatively easy to hook them in. You say, oh, there's a hole in the ground. It does, does there live a hobbit? No, there lives a bunch of, bunch of hobgoblins and drows and gelatinous cubes and go get them. If the player characters have different motivations, uh, I hesitate to say more sophisticated motivations, then the conflict can emerge from the cross of their motivations with some existing part of the world. And as you're designing the characters, your job as the GM, I feel, is to, at the very least, think harder about the conflicts that they seem naturally headed into, right? Right. And so the next uh, step from there, having identified the the conflict and the uh, core activity of the uh, characters, which is they are X, uh, they are uh, sky rangers or uh, dilettante investigators or retired gladiators, whatever their identity is, who do Y, who go and engage in something in order to further the conflict in the direction that they want. And so the next thing to do is to find for your first story, uh, the uh, goal that moves them closer toward their side of the conflict, or at least prevents the uh, antagonist side of the conflict from advancing further. And often, in fact, adventure stories are just about stopping the bad guy from doing something so that you can go back to the Shire and go back to smoking pipeweed. Mm -hmm. And so identify what the step is, whether it's a step initiated by the protagonist. D&D is weird and that the uh, good guys are going around causing trouble, uh, but usually the good guys are reacting to trouble that's caused by somebody else. And so what is a step that either th that they can identify early on as something that they should do to either advance uh, their desires or to block the desires of the antagonist? And so depending on what that conflict is, what's one uh, thing that we care enough about as an opening story to uh, engage with, right? You don't want to just, oh, well, the bad guys are going to buy some phone cards and that will give them, you know, a, a bargain price on their communications going forward. That's uh, not a thing, but they're going to uh, kidnap a bunch of people and hold them for ransom. Well, that's suddenly something that you care about. And so you've identified what it is that they've done. You then identify how it is that the player characters learn about this and are drawn into it. And then uh, the plotting process becomes creating a set of obstacles between them, a series of stages that they can uh, overcome or suffer setbacks during and move toward that, uh, that end goal. And the additional trick, uh, as we've spoken about in an earlier episode, what they're doing has to make sense, especially if it's a mystery um, or they have to, or the players have to figure out early on that what the bad guys are doing doesn't make sense and have some other thing that they have to figure out or do. And the additional trick here is that you want to create uh, not just one potential story, but multiple stories, multiple alternate ways for the players to engage with that problem and account for the obstacles and then move through those obstacles, either passing or failing to reach their goal. Right. And that can be just the GM creating a bunch of paths that lead uh, up the vampyramid to the, uh, to the uh, master vampire, or it can be the players themselves thinking around the problem and saying, no, they expect us to bust their kidnapping ring. What we're going to do is jump their phone card guy who's going to be a weaselly little guy and easy to bully. And then we can get information out of him that will lead us up the chain to the next bad guy. And that's really going to depend on the players being proactive, which, again, depends on how well you've hooked 
their characters' motivations at the very beginning. And sometimes the hook is just the assumed story. It's just, no, your motivation is you're a bunch of samurai. You go and you fight monsters because your daimyo told you to. And if you don't, you'll have to kill yourself as failures. And off they go. And sometimes it's an inner plot. It's like, oh, that vampire, it ate my beautiful brother. And uh, he was such a beautiful little boy. And the vampires ate him. And I hate them so much. And I'm going to go take him out. And that means that uh, someone who's merely going after the vampires because they're told to by M or, or a daimyo of some sort has one motivation. And the person who's after them for some personal draw has another motivation. And when those two motivations cross over, then you have entirely player character developed plot. And it's maybe up to you as the GM to think what can put those two motivations on slightly uh, divergent or better yet intersecting lines so that we develop story within the party as well as just the story of, oh, that's a very, very tough burglar alarm on those phone cards. You're going to have to roll very high, uh, which is good fun when it happens, but is not as productive as really engaging uh, with each player character and then trying to sort of not bang them into each other in a PvP way, but bounce them off of each other to generate sparks, right? Right. And in a uh, a one-shot with pre-gen characters, uh, you may supply those conflicting motivations, and uh, you have an, an overarching goal, uh, find the vampires, uh, and then you have different characters who plug into that motivation in different ways, revenge for my brother, loyalty from my daimyo, uh, curiosity, a desire to study and dissect a vampire, whatever it is. And in a more uh, open-ended uh, home uh, campaign situation, the connection between the initial goal and the motivations is what you ask the players to supply. So one of the people around the group comes up with the uh, oh, well, yeah, I want vengeance. And someone else says, I want to study vampires. And the other one says, I'm loyal to my daimyo. And uh, and there you go. And if you're just looking for a series of cool events, I guess you'd call it, there is a list of RPG plots. It's done by my buddy S. John Ross. It's called The Big List of RPG Plots. And you can get it for free off of RPG Net or find it on his website. And it is uh, built the other way. It is He looked at a ton of published adventures, drilled down to their core elements. And those are legitimately straight up game plots. And uh, th there are a lot of them. You can, if you're stuck for one, reach in, grab it. It's not an overarching campaign thread usually, but it'll, it'll kill an evening. And that's what we all want to do. To move more specifically to this question of connecting uh, setting to a story, you want to probably ask yourself, what is it that is unique about my setting that is the most interesting thing about my setting? And how do I connect that to a conflict and a goal? So if you have, uh, you know, a, a virtual city uh, where the characters have achieved electronic sentience, your uh, first goal, if that's the whole premise of your setting, your first goal has to relate to that in some way. So uh, perhaps uh, this is the one where, uh, you know, the people are being bumped off and the uh, the mission of the antagonist is to prevent people from ever discovering that uh, they are virtual, that they are ghosts in the machine. And uh, the antagonist then, uh, we go back through that whole process. The uh, There's a series of murders. The uh, player characters have motivations to uh, solve those murders, which you either supply in a one shot or ask them to supply in a campaign. And then their uh, resolution of that leads them to discover the most interesting, most important thing about your setting. And then the next story then 
jumps off from there. It's like, well, you know this thing now. What are you going to do about that? Uh, are you going to agree that this knowledge should be suppressed? Are you going to uh, reveal it? Are you going to try and find a way to reveal it in a controlled fashion? And what is the next goal that then arises out of that so that the second story seems to grow organically out of the first story and continues to relate to the most interesting thing about your setting? Yeah, and uh, I, we, we're all familiar with uh, I mean, I hope we're all familiar with uh, watching various uh, sorts of, of narrative media, movies, TV shows, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the instinct is certainly amongst our tribe to think about sequels and fan fiction and tie-ins and, and things that they could have, should have, would have done is almost natural. So once you've got one good, compelling story, that first one, where, as you say, uh, characters with motivations aim for the most interesting part of your setting through the conflicts that arise as entities uh, try to prevent them from doing that. Once you've done that, coming up with the next story, the sequel should not be super hard because again, we've all practiced doing it for decades in some cases by watching, you know, uh, Star Trek and getting mad that no show after the original series really lived up to the premise of Star Trek and coulda, woulda, shoulda. Similar responses will happen to your game and you'll think, oh, they sort of brushed this other cool thing about my setting. How can I bring that in? How can I make that central to whatever their next goal is? And, and whether their next goal is, as you say, to liberate out all the other virtuals, to take over the role of secret keepers, to ascend out of the machine and find the programmer, or just to get root access so that they can become Neos and fly around like Superman, you know, Whatever that is, think, how does this other cool thing that I want to more center in my game, how can I, you know, bring that in? What, what's my, uh, lift as a, as a GM, uh, gonna be to, to move this other thing into their, into their gun sights, either metaphorical or for real? Right. Alternately, you can come up with, if you want a more episodic game that isn't continually building your continuity, but has, lighter continuity elements in it that are supplied by the players. Uh, what I'm doing now is I'm, uh, in, in my current game, I'm drawing scenario premises from uh, the setting, specifically a place, Canada, and a time, the late 50s, and a theme, uh, the paranormal, uh, broadly writ. And therefore, when the agents uh, solve one case, then I go on and go, okay, what uh, either uh, what happens next in Canadian history that I might add a paranormal element to, or what element of paranormal Canadiana haven't I covered yet? So when I come back from my break, well, we haven't done Bigfoots yet. Maybe I'll do uh, Bigfoots. Or uh, perhaps I, I will, as I do my research, it will turn out to be uh, the date of another interesting UFO case, and I'll create a scenario around that. Or, you know, at some point I'll have to get to the prairie spiritualists and their... Uh, ectoplasm manufacturing in Manitoba. And so you can continue to revisit that formula each time. But it's, again, it's a matter of uh, knowing the core activity and knowing uh, what specific uh, wrapper you uh, add around conflict that relates uh, to the setting. And uh, I seem to be recapitulating, which means it's time for us to move. And I see a really weird looking HUD on the horizon. So let's get over there quick.
Hey, 13th Age Adventurers. Whether your one unique thing is a robot hand or a deck of many futures. Whether you're friends with the Diabolist or frenemies with the Great Gold Worm. All are eventually drawn to one dark lure. The Underworld. The vast and mysterious realms that lie beneath the Dragon Empire. Deep within the Underworld lie adventure and treasure as well as disaster and death. But what is reward without risk? With the book of the Underworld designer Gareth Ryder Hanrahan reveals the underworld secrets for 13th Age, including... The lands of the underworld, the underland, the kingdoms of the hollow realms, and what lies within the deeps. The mighty dwarven city of Forge. The domains of the silver folk elves. The threats of malice, the drow fort. And the four kingdoms of the mechanical sun. Forgotten gods, the gnome academy of magic, monsters, magic treasure, and more. For a limited time, get 10% off in print or PDF at the Pelgrane store with a voucher code STUFFWORLD. You will need the extra gold pieces for ropes and pulleys. That's the Book of the Underworld for 13th Age. Voucher code STUFFWORLD at PelgranePress.com. The columns, both Doric and not, the uh, vaulted roofs, the gables, and uh, over in the corner there's some uh, there's some brutalism, uh, which is uh, I think the in the new annex inform us that we are in the uh, most elaborate of huts, the uh, most uh, designed of huts, the architecture hut. And this time around, uh, stalwart Patreon backer Ludovic Chavant would like to know the nefarious schemes of the various utopian architects. And uh, Kim, when I heard utopian architects, I immediately thought early 20th century. But these utopians uh, are uh, working at about the same time that uh, Eruhan is being uh, uh, written. And uh, you're going to tell us all about them, starting with Etienne Louis Boulet. Yeah, these guys are from the period around the French Revolution. And they were, by and large... Uh, neoclassicists, which means that they were rejecting the Baroque over-ornamented, what they saw, architecture of Rococo, and attempting to re resume what they thought of as the purity of geometric form as embodied by the classical architects of Greece and Rome, hence neoclassical. You'll note that the, the emphasis on geometry and the deprecation of ornament and a degree of imposing of the architects and therefore the state's will on the surroundings rather than allowing the architecture to grow organically out of the surroundings also make them very ideologically uh, comfortable for the modernists and uh, the international style of the next bunch of utopian architects, Le Corbusier et al. And the reason that we put all of these architects in the same bucket is not only their various commonalities, but because the modernist architecture historian Emile Kaufman wrote a book in 1933 that put them all in the same bucket. So in the same way that Kynes says, all statesmen are dancing to the tune played by a dead economist, uh, apparently all podcasters are dancing to the tune played by a dead Viennese communist. So good for us. But they do all share a utopian outlook, or at least a visionary outlook. And uh, we'll start with Boulay, uh, who uh, writes a uh, essay on the art of architecture, 1788, in which he literally lays out that as a program. He says that architecture is not the art of building, 
rejecting the Roman authority of Vitruvius, he says, architecture is the art of planning buildings. <laughs> Building is in the hands of grubby engineers who will yes. ruin everything. And if I had a dollar for every time I heard my, my dad uh, yell at the engineers, well, um, my dad and I both would have had more dollars as it, as it turned out. And I'm sure the Romans had the, had the exact same thing back in the, just in Latin. Right. Uh, the, the, the essay on the art of architecture argues then implicitly for a utopia, a utopian egalitarian metropolis. And its examples in the essay are uh, examples of monumental architecture created to uplift the people of the state and to express a ideology of the architect and then also of the architect's commissioner. This, like I say, was written in 1788, so it is part of that philosophical ferment that is leading right into the revolution. Um, it is unpublished until 1953 again because... It did not actually fit the spirit of the times, it turned out, and it wasn't until the modernists were desperately looking around for anything to bolster their their sins and heresies that they uh, dragged Etienne Louis Boulay in. But he did like the abstract neoclassical geometrical forms, big fan of monumentalism. He designed an immense spherical cenotaph of Newton as a tribute to science. He thought it would be a sphere to demonstrate gravity, and because the sphere is the, the perfect uh, geometric form, uh, designed that in 1784, and uh, it was never built because no one wanted to build a big concrete sphere. And a bunch of people said, hey, isn't a square more about gravity? Yeah, and isn't it easier sphere to lands build? on you, it lands and it sort of rolls, <laughs> and that's a little confusing. How about a big block that lands on you? That's gravity. And I think also they said, isn't Newton British, and why are we building cenotaphs to a guy that wasn't our guy, given we have to squander all of our money on cake? For Marie Antoinette, he built a, a, or designed a, a project for the Bibliothèque Nationale uh, for a contest in 1785, which would have been blank outside walls, very radical, and then walls of books on the inside. And that was his sort of notion that there was an outside face of architecture and an inside face. And uh, th this was Boulay. Boulay mostly, I think, uh, big as a theorist. He did build some uh, individual uh, mansions and whatnot. But he uh, rapidly sort of goes out of favor uh, with the revolution. His uh, aristocratic patrons do the opposite of save him, and he dies in 1799. Right. I, I know from your research, Ken, that uh, his essay wasn't even published until 1953. So by definition, his theories would right. not have been that widely uh, influential. Yeah. Although Boulay and uh, the next guy, Claude Nicolas Ledoux, are at least part of the same conversation. They're both architects. They're both practicing at the same time. All architects were trained at the, the School of the, of the Beaux-Arts or the Academy of the Beaux-Arts before it was a school. So they all would have had social connections in a way that you don't necessarily have today where architects might have gone to any old architectural school. And uh, if they don't go to a conference, they may never meet another architect. These guys or at least the, the, the this first bunch of guys would have all met each other and known each other. Yes, the, the arts are all very organized in France. Exactly. Uh, Ledoux is a Freemason, uh, possibly a Rosicrucian, which is great. Uh, so we're, we, we're already set up for something fun. He also, big fan of neoclassicism, and he discovers the work of the Italian architect Palladio uh, and brings the Palladian style from England, which is where Palladio is doing all of his work because that's where the money is into France and again re rejects the ornamentalism of Rococo and begins building things for various uh, French governmental 
uh, bodies. So, for example, he builds the Royal Salt Works um, at Arc Essanan and plans a worker city of show to be built in a round circle around uh, the Salt Works. And uh, this is all very radical and modern. The authorities said, you should uh, build um, uh, the Salt Works by the water where the water can be used to wash out uh, the mineral salt. And he said, let's build the salt works by the salt mine because it, it's going to be easier to carry water than it is to be carrying salt because water is lighter than salt. And everyone was excited. And of course, then we're going to have to house all these miners. And that's why you have to build a utopian city. Well, that didn't happen because utopian city. And by then he'd moved on anyway. Uh, the, the, the governor of the Franche Comte province uh, hired him to design the theater at Besançon. And he uh, built it in a neoclassical style and radically, Robin, he put seats in for everybody, not just rich people. Everybody got a seat at the theater of Besançon and he shows his plan and the, the, the governor of French cop says, well, I like it, but where am I going to sit? <laughs> and he says, oh, no, no, you're going to sit in better seats. And uh, he says, great. I like that. Where's the king going to sit when he comes to see this theater? Oh, he's going to sit in the best seats. So Ledoux is the guy who invents theater seating classes. So he builds a, a balcony uh, for the rich and a upper obstructed view nosebleed seats. He invents the nosebleed seat for the um, poor, but honest. And then down front are the, the, the young uh, gay blades get to sit there. And so the rabble gets to, you know, fill out the sides. And that's that basically he invents theater seating as we understand it today. Uh, that is built, uh, his version of the Bibliothèque Nationale, uh, a gigantic barrel vault lined with books, which when you see the design looks like a very, it's like the opposite of Piranesi's dungeon. I mean, it looks very much like a Piranesi dungeon, uh, but it's full of books, not monstrous, uh, clockwork to torture you with. So it's, it's much better. It's a paradise and it's not built either because again, it's big and grandiose and probably would not have been built. Then, Sadly, chasing those royal contracts gets him in trouble because they say someone needs to design the towers and tax offices of the wall that we're going to build around Paris to control all the smuggling in and out of Paris. And it's called the Wall of the Farmer's General because the Farmer's General is the government body that's in charge of taxing the farmers. And he says, sure. And he comes up with a very clever system of interchangeable uh, elements, sort of prefiguring Frank Lloyd Wright in a way. So all of the tax offices are beautiful and the towers are amazing looking and uh, no one likes the wall around Paris, Robin. Uh, guess no. what? And they all are very mad at the, at the wall. They're mad at the taxing. They're mad at everything. And uh, Ledoux is fired by the king as a, you know, sort of a, a, a fall guy. And uh, he, weirdly enough, after the revolution. This taxing that I'm going to continue to do and is continue, going to continue to being a thing. Uh, even into the Belle Epoque era, but it's that architect's fault. I'm it's his you. fault. And one thing that they do get around to during the revolution is knock down all of Ledoux's lovely tax offices. Uh, so I think only two of the of the structures from that wall uh, of the 60 that Ledoux built are, are still standing because the, the peasants didn't know much, but they knew they didn't like neoclassical tax offices. Right. Uh, but the one thing governments like is taxation. So yes. <laughs> they're, they're rebuilt. Uh, other ones are rebuilt later and you're still... Uh, if you want to come into Paris with goods, uh, you're going to pay a toll, which uh, yes. is, is something we don't. Uh, it's uh, weird to think about just a city within a country where you have to 
go through customs. Mm-hmm. But Ledoux is uh, made the fall guy, does not get jobs in the revolutionary era, and dies basically, you know, uh, doing the occasional piece of military architecture for the army. But he does, he, he sort of, he, he's, he's shot his bolt by uh, 1787, sadly. Uh, then the next guy in the, in the basket with Ledoux and Boulet is a fellow named Antoine Laurent Thomas Vaudoyer, who is more famous because his son, I believe Leon, Leon Vaudoyer becomes a more famous ar- architect in sort of the Victorian, uh, not Victorian because it's France, but that era's sort of neo-Gothic style. Uh, but, uh, Antoine Laurent Thomas is a neoclassical. Uh, he also designs a spherical building. Uh, in 1782, there was something in the water, I guess, uh, the Maison du Un Cosmopolite, uh, house of a cosmopolitan. And his notion again was that this was a, a house for someone who lived in the area of theory, not as someone who, who grundles around in, in the earth. And again, no one wanted to build a spherical house, but he cleverly sucked up to Napoleon early and got a lot of contracts uh, for building government buildings again in neoclassical style. So the French empire style, of Napoleon adapts neoclassicism just as Napoleon is trying to imply that he is the heir to the Roman empire. So there's a lot of good work for Vaudier, none of it particularly well-known or famous, um, but he does build the Institut de France in 1804, which he has to sort of build out of an existing college. So it's sort of a compromise between uh, neoclassicism and the older Rococo stuff. There was something called the College of Four Worlds that becomes the Institute of, of France, and he uh, and, and he has to put it together. So that's sort of his his uh, his, his uh, surviving thing. But again, he likes the spheres, likes the neoclassicism. Uh, there isn't as much known about him, partly because he's more famous son, and partly because no one likes a suck up. So there we are. But you got to be a suck up to get your buildings built as an architect. That is exactly the lesson that we learned from the last guy in Kaufman's book, uh, Jean-Jacques Lequeux, who was a failed architect. And he worked as a draftsman in a couple of architectural offices. He trained as an architect, couldn't get anyone to build anything. His work, again, was uh, a neoclassicist. His work, again, um, had a uh, aspect of Pythagorean abstraction to it. Uh, he designed two spheres not to be left undone by the other guys, the temple of equality and the temple of the earth, both of which were rejected by the French revolutionary government in 1794. They may have been revolutionarily uh, on board with spheres, but again, they had stuff to buy mostly weapons with which to fight off the counter revolutionaries. So no spheres then, um, that seems to have been the moment at which he then sort of folds into himself and just draws a bunch of designs that are increasingly grandiose and increasingly irrelevant. And there, he called uh, his book, I believe, Architecture Seville, implying that it would be a textbook of civil architecture. And it is crazy pants. It is uh, increasingly bananas. He is at least um, orientalist in that he draws... Uh, inspiration from the architecture of, uh, of the Turks and the Mughals and the Chinese and the Japanese to the extent that he knows he's, uh, he owns books on those architectures and he's trying to build them as, as things that you could put in a truly cosmopolitan city. Uh, he blends biology and construction. So he designs a dairy barn shaped like a cow. He designs mansions of love. 
with little uh, drawings of the human figures engaged in the activity for which the mansion is ideally designed. Uh, he owned a copy of the Hypnerotomachia Polyphili from 1499, which is an esoteric, erotic architecture book. And not a lot of those around, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's three things that you don't often see together. Do not often. Just pick two, but nope. Whoever the anonymous hero was who gave us the hypnerotomachia It can polyphili. be architectural and erotic, and, or it can be erotic and esoteric, but it can't be all three. can't be all three, except in 1499. And Lequeux, uh possibly under the drive of that, possibly there's a legend that he lived in a brothel because he couldn't afford rent anywhere else, uh, drew a number of things called the lascivious figures, some of them nudes, some of them various uh, genitals and other parts. Uh, designed architecturally, like with ele elevations and whatnot. So it's very strange. Again, Lequeux is almost completely forgotten by everyone. And Kaufman discovers him and puts him in his book and says, this is another example of revolutionary architecture, architecture that is about higher things and not boring old things you could build and that people would want to live in. And so Lequeux gets sort of popped into uh, the world Um he is maybe a, an influencer on the Surrealists. We don't know. His art certainly looks very Surrealistic. And there is a theory uh, by the architecture historian Philippe Dubois uh, that Marcel Duchamp, who worked in the Bibliothèque Nationale from 19... Or worked, rather, in the uh, Bibliothèque Saint-Geneviève from 1913 to 1915, altered Le drawings, uh, basically to prank Corbusier. The downside is those drawings are held at a different uh, library, the Bibliothèque Nationale, and there's no evidence whatsoever uh, that Duchamp actually altered any of the drawings or ever even saw them. Except that he was <laughs> in the Dreamlands at this time, as we all know from Dreamhands of Paris. Exactly. So once you're altering drawings in the Dreamlands, uh, you can totally uh, alter them in one library and have them shift in another. So right. uh, that seems... And pranking Le, Le Corbusier... If anybody's doing that, I'm down with it. And if Duchamp right. is yeah. doing it, I'm, I'm triple down with that. So. Exactly. Um, and again, it's a, it's, it's a fun theory. And I, 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 maybe I overstate myself because I think Dubois did turn up the fact that Duchamp like checked out Lequeux's book of drawings once. So it's, it's not completely impossible. It's just probably impossible. Modulo, obviously the dreamlands. Uh, so all of these guys believed in and practiced and uh, preached. Uh, what they call architecture parlante, meaning architecture that speaks. It's not architecture you have to have explained to you, like church architecture. It's architecture that is very, very clear. It's this barn looks like a cow. This barn looks like it's a cow. Mo or monumental obviousness. This uh, tax uh, building looks like a Roman temple, and that the form should be instrumental. It should uh, be instrumental not just of what it, it has to do, because anyone, any old architect can do that, but it has to be instrumental of what it wants to teach and explain, uh, and uh, what the state is trying to tell you. And it is in reaction to the Enlightenment notion that all architecture should uh, exist on a continuous chain and be part of the next architecture down and the next architecture up, up, all the way up to heaven. Um, it's rejecting that and saying, nope, uh, if you're going to build a, a building, it should not be in continuity with its surroundings. It should be making its own statement. And that is, again, a very modernist attitude. And it's why so many downtown cities look terrible, uh, because no one was talking to anyone else when they put up their buildings. And so they look like a jumble of nonsense. And God forbid you should have 
a modernist structure in a, in a natural landscape, then it looks ridiculous. But again, this was the notion, uh, as they were coming out. And that may be the Palladian approach because Palladio, Palladio, uh, for all that he was a master of proportion and design, did not care what the natural surroundings were. He was, he had a building in his head and it was going to go there. And if you had to shave the hill off to make it work, that's what you had to do. So that Palladian draw, uh, and then the imp- impetus of neoclassicism, uh, drives them to this sort of uh, notion of architecture at, that begins as a theoretical form and only reluctantly uh, takes physical shape uh, on our planet. And in some cases, it doesn't do that with all these uh, big concrete spheres. Right. And the question is about their sinister plan. I'm not sure if they had a sinister plan, but they're definitely a Cartesian, if not Cartesian plan, uh, which would be uh, clearly the magical thing going on here is good old Neoplatonism. And right. they are attempting to bring uh, the uh, our uh, realm of the less than ideal one step closer to the realm of the ideal and symbolic and to bring uh, the world of ideals uh, to Earth uh, to either harness their uh, powers in just a particular installation. So the, the barn that looks like a cow, it grows uh, more platonic cows who uh, have more platonic steaks and more platonic uh, milk. milk. And uh, so it's about drawing... Uh, the, the power from the, the realm of the, the abstract and the ideal and the perfect uh, down into uh, our realm. And of course, the only difficulty with having platonic forms on Earth is that we humans are not platonic at all. No, we are, we are Aristotelian on our good days. <laughs> yes, uh, distinctly so. And so more Augustinian of, even. Yes. And so the, the, the uh, backwash effect of, of if these things had been built, if these spheres existed, if we had a sphere of gravity, uh, that would increase the pull of gravity around that area, area and, and, and would work on the people to make them uh, more grave and more static. And the uh, people who are around the cow barn would begin to become more bovine. And uh, I, again, uh, the problem with the a realm of ideals is it has no room for free will. So whether these architects themselves were trying to leech people of their humanity and turn them into abstractions, or whether that was just an after effect, uh, surely there must have been uh, some sort of uh, counterforce of uh, freedom and and good chaos, uh, sort of a, a prefiguring of the cut-ups, who were uh, making sure that these outwardly uh, fanciful and, and uh, fun structures that were nonetheless dangerous in their esoteric effect were uh, mostly uh, not constructed. And that made, uh, of course, the building of the, those tax offices even more dangerous because magical tax offices. Well, I don't need to tell you why uh, no, well, the, that's a bad thing. Why the player characters have to be uh, trying to uh, knock those over. Yeah. And uh, it is, uh, I, I guess, relevant that uh, indeed many of the more grandiose Neoplatonic structures do not get built. And it's not so much the cutups, because I think if you're just looking for a sort of a, a wild, wacky person who skips from uh, inspiration to inspiration, that's kind of Jean-Jacques Lecou. But if you're looking for the people who just sort of subtly stick a, a, a stick in and, and ruin the plan, those are the legions of accountants for the, um, uh, for the, for the king and then the re- revolutionary governments who say, well, yeah, sure. Who doesn't want a spherical temple of equality? But on the other hand, it'll roll over and kill a guy and then we'll all be sued. Where are we going to be then? 
and uh, say, yeah, no, you're right. We should give more money to Napoleon for muskets. That's probably a, a, a good idea. And off we go to have the wars of the revolution instead of a bunch of spheres instantiating um, uh, uh, some Rosicrucian notion of egalite or even of the earth. It was the League of Extraordinary Liability Lawyers. Exactly. It was a secret, uh, no doubt Swiss-based conspiracy. That sadly, Le Corbusier was probably one of their initiates and he broke out. He's like, no, I know the secret. You just get the government to uh, sign a check in advance and then you can build any dumb thing you want. Well, uh, we've already run way over time in this segment. So if someone wants to ask uh, how Buckminster Fuller fits into this and with his fears in the 20th century and whether that was a uh, another outbreak of uh, Neoplatonism, uh, some patron is going to have to ask us to do it. And on that note, it's time for us to... Uh, scrabble on out of here and uh, over to a hut near a swamp. Hut near a swamp. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast's architecture parlant by joining such neoclassical Patreon backers as... Jay Moore. James Kiley. Carl Schmidt. Anders Moline. And Chris McCarthy. The line of mysterious footprints, the howls in the distance. Are we in the Elliptony hut? Are we in the horror hut? No, we're in the hut between those huts. A hut of monsters. We're in the monster hut. And in the monster hut, our topic is given a monster. Uh, in this case, given a monster by the lovely and talented Robert W. Chambers. What do you do with him? How do you make a scenario around him? Specifically, how do you make an investigative scenario around him? And I say him because I think this monster is a, is a dude in this case, or it was in the story. But your monsters can be of any sort of gender. Because uh, they're not bound by our human conceptions. Uh, Robert W. Chambers' story, The Third Eye, contains a monster called the Argus, which, Robin, if only there was a, a Robert W. Chambers role-playing game that was available and that had a description of this monster, we could, we could skip a, a lot of this uh, segment. What do you think, Robin? Right. Uh, so, in fact, yes, as part of one of the Kickstarter goals for the Yellow King role-playing game, uh, Ken... Uh, assigned me a number of things to fit into the game, uh, which annoyingly uh, led me to have to read many of the lesser stories of Robert W. Chambers. And uh, in one of its distinctly lesser stories, 
uh, from police exclamation mark. It's it's the lesser collection of those lesser stories. Right. I, I couldn't be more proud, by the way. Yes. <laughs> I'd do it again, Robin. And if you think <laughs> that uh, a, a book called Police with an exclamation mark is somehow about police, I'm here to tell you that it's about tongue-in-cheek tales of uh, romance and cryptozoology uh, starring the uh, unreliable uh, narrator and egomaniac uh, Percy Smith of the Anthropological Field Survey Department of the Great Bronx Park Zoological Society, who, along uh, in this case with uh, Billy Kemper, the much more uh, better-looking and charming uh, colleague, uh, goes down to Florida, uh, and they are searching for the uh, for the Argus, a, a legendary humanoid uh, with an eye on the back of his head, and uh, they engage a guide uh, to to the swamps whose name is Gru. Uh, G-R-U-E, and immediately begin to feel creepy around uh, this person uh, as if they're being observed, even when he's looking in a different direction. And especially when he begins to hunt waterfowl by leaping into the water and uh, consuming them whole, uh, this seems unwholesome to them. And their whole mission is they want to find one of these intelligent beings, one of these people, and take them back to the Bronx for study. That is kidnap and uh, subject to experimentation this Argus when they discover the Gru is in fact the Argus they're hunting for uh, he somewhat understandably tries to kill them with a knife but instead they kill him the only weakness a three-eyed man has is two guys who are bigger than him <laughs> yes and uh, uh, Kemper gets the girl and that's the story and so the thing about the aftermath setting is that I could then make these uncool things sinister and cool by positing that the Bronx Park Zoological Society is was a center of sinister experimentation uh, by uh, the Castain regime. And so take the unacknowledged thing about the story and make it acknowledged. And so the idea is, is that they uh, ha did indeed uh, capture multiple uh, Arguses. Or and actually, the, the plural is also Argus. I decided because you're never going to get people to say Argoy, right? Also, the uh, the Argus is a little bit fuzzy under his clothes, and uh, the idea is that they uh, train some of them up to use uh, as as spies, and so uh, that's the premise. And so the question then uh, now the description in the book, of course, helpfully provides you uh, with a number of, uh, of premises, but we're uh, going to pretend we don't have those bullet points in order to design a scenario around encountering Argus. And so, Ken, what uh, do we want to start off with is our, our premise. I guess this is sort of an, ex an example now of taking something from a setting and turning it into a story. So we're right. uh, doing an example of what we talked about in the first segment. All right. Um, we know that Argus are either sort of the uh, more sinned against than sinning victims of uh, medical experiments, or they are co-opted. Uh, by the man, in this case, the Castane man, into uh, serving the, the secret police. So I think that for players to have the full gamut of the Argus, they need to be being watched by an Argus secret policeman or team of Argus. And then as they overpower one of them, he says... I'm only doing it because they're going to kill my mom and dad and my sister and my uh, Argus boyfriend in uh, the Z Bronx Park. The, the government is holding them there, and I'm just forced to be a spy. I can give you the information, and then it can become a break into the zoo and liberate the Argus colony there 
uh, and you know, they can run off to the New Jersey Pine Barrens or the Bronx or wherever Argus want to be. Right. So, so we have a little continuity thing to iron out, which is that, uh, by the time that the uh, game starts in aftermath, the Castain regime has been overthrown and the uh, zoological park was the site of a big uh, battle and it's been cleared out. Um, right. And so, uh, we can take that idea of, uh, the Argus being forced to surveil uh, as surveillance experts who are presumably trained in a wide range of other surveillance techniques, that they're the mm -hmm. expert watchers, right. uh, that they are being controlled by uh, revanchists who yeah. uh, are holding... It's like the First Order. Yes. Now, the revanchists are, uh, like uh, the stormtroopers in Star Wars, are the obvious villain for every uh, aftermath uh, mm -hmm. story. So uh, if you're going to do this one this way, you want to do it early. Uh, but you can't not do revanchists. Uh, because they are the obvious villain. Uh, another uh, story that you could do is just that you uh, encounter... Uh, the Argus have very good reason to not want to be discovered again, right? That they've melted right. away. Yep. Uh, they are don't want to be put before a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, even though they were coerced, a lot of them. They... Uh, don't think that they're going to come out well if they're exposed, and so they just well, the last hide. time they met people, they got tortured in a zoo for a decade and a half. Exactly. So, yeah. um, and so this brings us to the other uh, uh, side of that coin, which is when you're designing a, an, a scenario premise, ask yourself how far against their sympathies do you expect the players to go? So uh, it may be that, in fact, you uh, rather than hunting the Argus, that an Argus comes to you uh, fairly early on, and uh, you are the ones who are then asked to, they've been sent to spy on you. They lure you into a trap. But when they spring the trap, they say, hey, we've been following you. We sympathize with you. We hate the Castain regime even more than you do. And we just brought you here because we need you to rescue the, the hostages that they're holding. Uh, you know, and we're pretty good at surveillance and we can help out with some stuff, but uh, we're not so great at uh, uh, other forms of investigation. And we definitely, uh, there's some reason why we can't do it ourselves. Maybe they have, uh, you know, tracking technology that alerts them to the arrival of the Argus or they're afraid of being recaptured themselves. And f I think the interesting thing about this too is that uh, it's moving away from a uh, sort of a murder scenario, who's the secret murderer, to finding and rescuing hostages, which is not as common an objective. Uh, and so then you have to, uh, they know a little bit about the revanchists who have captured their relatives, but they don't know enough to, to obviously, they don't know where they are. They'd be able to just point you there. And uh, that uh, suggests uh, also uh, kind of active, uh, they can do some trade crafty things and that the Argus are, well, we're going to pretend that we're still working for them. Uh, we're not so good at setting traps, except for this one that we just lured you into. Yeah. How, how about what, what are we going to do if we're going to be double agents? How do you how do how do we help you save our people? And and if you're looking for a a twist, you can always have it be that the bad guys are not actually the the good old revanchists that you're, that's what you're expecting, but they're actually a very radical part of the resistance who still doesn't think Argus are people because they're not. They have a third eye. They're a different species. They're animals to be exploited because we're building a bigger, better America and we can't be wasting our time caring about a bunch of swamp animals who are from Florida and therefore ideologically suspect anyway. And so it's actually, you know, a, a, a radical faction of one of the other factions. Uh, maybe it's, you know, the Marxists in that world, or it's the, the young, uh, super radicals, the, the initiators. It could have been any group as long as there's a radical 
segment within it that doesn't see Argus as people, which in fairness, after the Castain regime's done its number, is going to be most of them will not see Argus as people. They'll see them as, uh, at best, uh, useful tools to be kept happy. And so um, you think it's revanchists. Maybe even the Argus think it's revanchists because they're using all the old gear from the uh, from the zoo uh, to keep them uh, penned up and and uh, experimented on. But it turns out that the bad, the big bad guy, is either someone that the player characters have been aligned with, or someone that the player characters have met, and they and you then you have the the big reveal of, of literally you know pulling someone's hair back and revealing oh they got a third eye in the back of their head. They're not who we thought we were. And then you can tie the theme of the Argus uh, into the uh, resolution, the denouement of the story, which is, oh, you don't know who to trust. Everybody could have a third eye in the back of their head. And that is uh, your your moment. And uh, right. and they don't even necessarily have to be uh, sort of violent radicals uh, pasted into this setting, but rather they're radical anti-paranormalists, which is right. another group that's in it. And it's like, mm-hmm. well... If there are people running around with a third eye, that's because of Carcosa. And you guys spend all of your time mopping up weird supernatural threats. And so then uh, you get to the moral dilemma of what if there are benign beings, benign sapient beings who are imbued with the power of Carcosa? Do you... And that brings up the issue is the, uh, in this world, the gates to Carcosa have been violently slammed shut. The Argus want to continue and, and propagate as a people, but it's becoming increasingly difficult for them. So another thing that they might be doing is that though, although they are sympathetic, uh, their uh, mission might be that they just want to open up one little portal just in, one Florida in Florida where no one will miss to it. Carcosa, and that will allow their babies to be born uh, healthy. And so what do you, and I think uh, we're coming up with something that's even uh, sort of Star Trek-y and it comes to uh, its moral dilemma at the end it's like well do you let them have their little uh, and then the investigation is there a way to open up a little bit of benign carcos in power or is that if we just give them a copy of the king in yellow and let them have <laughs> do that, Argus community theater <laughs> yeah but don't put on the play but just you know keep it under the bed when the midwife comes is this mm-hmm. too much of a crack in reality because they're you know these people turn out to be you know they're sympathetic they just want their children to live so uh, that could be yet another uh, sort of interesting twist that takes you away from the more obvious notes that you may have already uh, hit in previous uh, scenarios. So there's uh, so so this is just an, an example of uh, when you uh, create or adapt a creature for an investigative game, what is it doing in the game is different than you know sitting in a room and waiting to uh, attack you in an interesting way when you bust the door down but rather a, a way to generate a whole bunch of uh, different mystery plots and uh, if the characters become really interested in the argus you could have a series of them right the first one where they're kind of sympathetic another one where they're being uh, co-opted again or uh, one where they're being uh, hunted by uh, fanatical anti-paranormalists who uh, don't care uh, whether their victims are uh, harmless and, and sapient so that uh, could give you a whole sort of Argus arc just out of uh, a one uh, sort of a creature designed to only be in one somewhat uh, anodyne tongue-of-cheek story. <laughs> yeah, so the... And this even is before you port them into some other setting that you uh, have invented yourself. These are these are Argus native to the Chambersian world. 
Um, you can imagine making Argus like a player character in a, in a sort of a, a fantasy game, a, a rune quest or a, or a, a 13th age or a D and D. And it's like, Oh no, my one unique thing is that I've got a third eye in the back of my head. So harder to surprise me. And I, uh, I eat ducks, but like, you know, not in the lazy delayed way that you eat ducks. Um, and that's just, you know, a, a fun, a uh, weird little fantasy fun note, as opposed to a tiresome interpolation into uh, Robert W. Chambers' uh, happy and successful life. So you 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 can have them be that. It can be a a, a thing that is deliberately weird in a game where you're am- amplifying paranoia. So uh, in a Knights Black Agents game, there's some sort of supernatural uh, tool of the vampires, and yep, they've got an eye in the back of their head. That's just weird and strange, and you're never understood that. They were bred in Florida or that um, uh, anything about them. It's just, well, vampires attract weird bad guy servitors. That's just how vampires work. And uh, if you've got your vampires being built by a, a secret government plot, but whether the Nazis or the communists, or the CIA, maybe the Arguses are another version of that secret government plot. And instead of building uh, super soldiers, they were trying to build super surveillers. And uh, so that you could give your Arguses, you know, the sensitive smell of a bloodhound so they can track people through the streets as well as see them in the in the in the back of their eye. This is, again, more in tune with being built uh, than evolved, because obviously once you've evolved a third eye, Mother Nature's, you know, knocking off for the rest of the day. Right. Right. Uh, well, or uh, as in uh, the the way they appear in Aftermath, evolved and then uh, involuntarily enhanced. Mm-hmm. On that note, I think it's time for us to uh, head toward a familiar uh, series of sounds in our final segment. Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in... There is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us it's once more time to check out Ken's time machine, which of course is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, we're once again uh, visiting alternate cinema history, uh, this time at the behest of stalwart Patreon backer Jeremy French, who uh, recently discovered that David Lynch turned down uh, an offer to direct Return of the Jedi, or rather Revenge of the Jedi, as it was currently uh, conceived. And uh, the question is, why did Time Incorporated send Ken back in time to stop this from happening? And I guess this is, uh, again, a slight violation of the way we try to get Ken's time machine, which was we want to envision an alternate time stream. But I'm sure that before you shut it down, you took a look at 
David Lynch's Revenge of the Jedi and, and can uh, report back. But uh, first of all, what, what did you have to stop from happening? And I, I think the hard thing would be whatever uh, weird alternate cinema tech with time powers, but their challenge would have been to make David Lynch want to do this, right? Yeah. I mean, the story goes back. Lucas does not want to direct uh, the third Star Wars. He's had success with letting someone else direct the second Star Wars. And he thinks, great, I can just be the hands-on producer and uh, touch all the aliens and do all the fun part. And the boring part of working with actors, I can leave to somebody else. And his first pick is his buddy Steven Spielberg. But Lucas is having a fight with the Directors Guild of America uh, over the placement of uh, Kasdan's credit for Empire. Uh, the Directors Guild says that if anyone's name appears... In the front of the movie, the director's name has to appear in the front of the movie. And they said, the word Lucasfilm contains your name, George, so you can't put it up at the front. And if you do, you have to give a director's credit at the front. Lucas says, that's nonsense. I'm not doing it. I quit. So having quit the director's guild, Spielberg, who is already in trouble for undermining Tobe Hooper's credit on Poltergeist, can't direct return. So he makes a list of non-directors Guild of America directors, David Cronenberg, John Carpenter, David Lynch, Cronenberg's Canadian, so he doesn't count, uh, guys working in England, Terry Gilliam, John Borman, uh, three Richards, uh, Donner, Marquand, and Lester, all of them British, all of them not DGA. And, and I really want to go on the Time Incorporated uh, Cinematheque tour and see virtually all of these the Richard Lester one, the Terry Gilliam one, the John Borman. I want to see all of these. Yeah, I want to see the film fest that is all of them. Yeah, I, I, yeah. this is because it's a wish list, yeah. right? I, I wouldn't even mind the the, the the Richard Donner one. I think that'd be uh, pretty fun. And uh, Cronenberg basically hangs up and says, "That's a stupid idea. I'm not doing it." And so uh, Lucas, ha having gone, I guess, through his list or gotten the same answer from other people who did not leave. In memoirs makes the offer to David Lynch. This is in April 1981, and right because this is not a good gig if you're, especially if you're a visionary director, because no. you are subsuming your vision to somebody else who you know is going to backseat direct it and wants it to match the other movies. Mm -hmm. you're, you're not going to get any of these guys in our reasonable time stream. Yeah, Lucas loved Eraserhead, which is almost the only movie that Lynch has made. He's made Eraserhead and he's made Elephant Man. Elephant Man won a ton of Oscars, and that's what kind of puts him on Lucas's radar as a guy the studio will be happy right, with. Right, and seems more normal. It's his normalist film. Exactly. And he loved Eraserhead, though. He said you couldn't tell what decade it was shot in, which for Lucas, who wants to make uh, 70s movies in the 80s shot like they were made in the 40s, he thinks that's a terrific idea. So he calls up Lynch. Lynch says uh, in an interview later he had next door to zero interest, and uh, he had to go through a lot of falderall, uh, goes up to Marin, uh, to Skywalker, uh, meets Lucas, and then Lucas starts telling me about these Wookiees, <laughs> and I got a little headache right there. Right, which implies, of course, that Lynch... If he needs to be told about Wookiees, that he has not seen the previous two blockbuster movies. Right. Um, he's not a science fiction guy, he maintains. Uh, the irony of him getting to do Dune is a little strange then. Again, in Lucas's telling, or rather in Lynch's telling, uh, Lucas, you know, gave him a weird pitch meeting and showed him all the stuffed animals. Uh, these might have been Ewoks, and they might have still been called Wookiees at the time, because in that earlier stage of the film, we didn't know that Ewoks weren't Wookiees. And then he took me to lunch, and I like salad, but this restaurant only served salad. 
And by then, my headache is practically a migraine, and I just said <laughs> no. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I, I, I called him up and I said, no, I, I, you're, it's your project, it's your movie, you should do it, it's your vision. And then I called my lawyer and told him what I'd done, and my lawyer was very mad. <laughs> he said, you <laughs> lost so many millions of dollars. <laughs> So Lynch, uh, you know, was uh, admired Lucas as a person who wanted to vomit his vision out there onto the screen, did not think he wanted to work with him, certainly did not want to work with a bunch of puppets. And so uh, Lynch turns him down. Yes, and the, Lucas, the, these puppets are not a deformed fetus. These, there's, there's uh, although the notion of the alternate Jabba in uh, David Lynch's vision is, is pretty great. So Lucas then hires Richard Marquand, who not only is British and not part of the DGA is also a man whose directorial philosophy is don't make it look like you directed anything. Just be invisible. Just be there. Be a completely transparent director. He's your and classic journeyman. Exactly. And, and that's great. If you're making the eye of the needle, uh, maybe not so good if you're making a uh, return of the Jedi, but whatever, it all works out. We all love the Wookiees slash Ewoks. Everyone has a good time. And that is uh, the outcome in our history. So, the Cinematech Time guys, who, quite frankly, are, are great guys. Uh, you'd love them, Robin. Right. And they put everything back together again, except right. I guess yeah. this time they were busy, I, I don't know, with the uh, with the Cronenberg, Thelma and Louise. Mm -hmm. But they, uh, they, they basically just, you know, dosed David Lynch up with uh, painkillers. So he was in a, a haze of happiness when he uh, is talking to, Lynch, uh, to Lucas and signs before he realizes what he's doing. Uh, possibly realizes he could afford his own ranch and folder all on puppets if he if he did the job, uh, and he and he moves ahead and he makes a uh, a re Return of the Jedi or Revenge of the Jedi that is uh, I'm going to suggest probably a fraught production process uh, that uh, you get bits of Lynchian uh, vision in but are washed out by Lucas's big Californian stomp, and I say that I guess that because I've seen it and that's what happened. Um, Darth Vader is a pallid-faced Robert Blake. Yeah, there's um, uh, uh, there's a lot of Jedi vision in it, but not a lot of vision in it anymore. Uh, so that's basically the reason that uh, I allowed it to get unmade again, uh, reverting to the uh, much more reasonable regular time stream. Also, I, I miss the dancing uh, backwards Ewoks, though. Well, we all do. It, it's just one of the things we have to serve. But what we do get is Virginia Madsden. Uh, as Princess Irialon in Dune, and I would erase many better movies than David Lynch's uh, Return of the Jedi uh, to make sure that we get that. Um, so I guess the lesson here is that some asterisks in history uh, are, are asterisks for a reason. Yeah. Uh, despite the efforts of the uh, time traveling cinematech, and and sometimes they f they finally like get the man uh, who killed Don Cody made, and then nobody notices. Right. It, it, it goes straight to video and, and it's just, well, there we are. I hope everyone enjoyed that. It's on my PVR. We still haven't watched it. I know. I've, I've got it somewhere. On that uh, somewhat dispiriting note, it's time for us to uh, head on out of this podcast. And uh, But a, a mere week from today, uh, unless uh, the uh, time-traveling Cinematech changes everything, we'll be back for another episode full of similar esoteric nonsense. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep Chewbacca out of the Black Lodge and this podcast alive by joining such backers as... Jonathan Donald. Louis Sylvester. Michael Manival. Phil Bailey. And James Candelino. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate the book hound in your life with our latest design, Three Points in Library Use. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, uh, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>